This podcast is brought to you with limited interruption by Rudy Luther Toyota. Whether looking for an exciting brand new Toyota, a certified pre-owned vehicle, or getting quality routine maintenance and service for your vehicle, Rudy Luther Toyota is the place to go. Rudy Luther Toyota, the southeast corner of 394 and 169 in Golden Valley. Subscribe to the podcast Beyond Politics. They host some of the biggest names and smartest minds. Beyond Politics is from a former Democratic congressman who helped ignite Barack Obama's campaign and a former campaign manager and political columnist. They go beyond the usual chatter on politics, news, science, and books. It's politics and everything beyond. On Beyond Politics, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Broadcasting live on AM 950, uh, the progressive voice of Minnesota in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and in Chicago at nights, WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk. It is the Matt McNeil Show for your uh, Tuesday. It is, this is an insane news day. This is insane. Uh, FYI, coming up here in the four o'clock hour, we've got Paul uh, Patrick Cooligan from the Minnesota Reformer going to join us for his usual Tuesday visit, and then Tom Gum from Rotary International. He's going to be joining us as well. Uh, they've got, of course, their big uh, event coming into Minneapolis-St. Paul on the uh, 2029, their annual convention. So we'll talk to him about that uh, coming up here in the 4 o'clock hour. Patrick, how are we today? Uh, it's a little bit of a tough news day. Of course, I'm sure we'll talk about some things later on. But otherwise, you know, it's doing all right. Well, it's, uh, you know, the, it's there's a lot going on today. Holy God. Um, I'm just checking... Uh, Mayor Orcas, uh, on the Department of Homeland Security, Secretary Mayorkas, wherever that is. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> Marjorie Taylor Greene went all racist. Uh, they're, they're, they just, they, they are just, they are, it's there. I don't think they're going to, it's going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen because, um, you know, basically, the, they have two, two votes to work with as the Republican majority, and uh, I have already think McClintock and Buck have both already said no, we're not going to vote for it. So I think this is over. I think this is just a lot of people screaming into the wind at this point. And yeah, it does. Set, I mean, I, I the thing which is hilarious is you can already see the cab coming down the street with Republicans insisting. You know, when if the Democrats were ever to you know find you know say. You know, you discovered that, you know, a Republican cabinet member is an actual cannibal eating other human beings. They're going to be like, how dare you turn this process political when we did it? It was because we really wanted to. Yeah, that sort of thing. You can already see that coming. 952-946-6205. But let's start with the joyous and beautiful. Well, I... I got I got to start off with this one story. I've already posted this today on the social media. I saw this and it just made me laugh. So apparently in one of the briefings uh by Jack Smith in his case against Trump, he basically has pointed out now you can't really talk about things but if you file it as part of a, a motion, it can become public knowledge. And one of the things that Trump is clearly doing everything in his power to delay these trials any way he possibly can. And it's just a comical joke at some of the stuff that he's doing. And you found out Trump's lawyers 
have suggested that the reason why they need a delay is, and, and, and they want censures against the prosecution, is because they don't have a computer either, either at their own home or in their law office where they can view the evidence the prosecutor has more than a few times tried to give them, which is part of discovery. You know, you, you're the prosecution. Here's the evidence we have against your client. It's called discovery, and you basically give it to them. They have given this to Trump's people, and they keep arguing that they haven't because the one lawyer has said, I don't have a computer in my office or in my home. Now, I want you just to think about that for a second. <laughs> That is a fairly bold lie, and one that's going to get you disbarred. I, I, I'm dead serious. I don't see how his lawyer uh, gets past this. But the reality is, as funny as that is, and that is just a comical hoot, it just is. Uh, I don't have... What's a computer? <laughs> that is what he is requiring his lawyers to do in federal court. <laughs> I do all my calculations on the abacus. Uh, (laughs) Oh, and the reason why is he knows he is dead to rights on this stuff. And once again, the the insurrection case, the the insurrection case against Donald Trump, I guarantee you we are going to, when that evidence starts hitting, we are going to see stuff that we did not see and my guess is going to be, it's going to be a, hello, it's Donnie T. This is the fourth voicemail I've left you. Yeah, the insurrection's a go. I know I lost, but we're going to try to overthrow the elections anyway. And here's a list of all the people in Congress that are helping me. There's Marjorie Taylor Greene. There. <laughs> Just list them all off, everyone that's involved, and just call me back. And, hey, make sure you erase this, because I'd sure hate to have people have the evidence of me admitting to the crime. (laughs) Now, where's my ketchup? Um, You know this. He's got to delay this. And he's got to try to – and the hope is what – you know, he's going to go full dictator. He has to, because even if he did win – God forbid, in November. He will do everything in his power. He'll, he'll, he'll basically say, fine, uh, you can have your court case, but I'm basically going to you know, order the military to arrest you, and there's nothing you can do about it. And that's how he'll do it. He will do it. Because even you know, if the system that we have in place still stands, he can't be, he'll, he'll never get off the hook. The ruling that came down today from the federal appeals court, people have said that they were wondering why it was taking so long. And some legal and some of the legal experts, I think, got it exactly right. They were making a case where for the Supreme Court to basically go against them, and and they might and to give to give you know give the supreme court a little bit of an out they might just want to weigh in on this just because of the brevity of this you are basically saying from here on out that no president is above the law and we're going to make sure we dot our i's cross our t's and do it all the way so don't be surprised if the supreme court agrees to hear this case even though they agree with it but that being said the the federal appeals court the ruling today which basically says no Donald Trump that you do not have immunity for life 
they did their due diligence. They dotted every I, crossed every T, and they made it to where, you know, if if not for the fact that this is such a precedent-setting ruling, ruling, that basically the Supreme Court couldn't really overturn them. And so, and I and I have zero doubt that RV and and you know uh, you know the, the the French Mediterranean coast uh, you know vacationer over there uh, in Alito and in in Thomas they'll oh yeah no 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 he he no, all presidents well all presidents whose names are T U R U M P they basically are immune but no one else is that's I guarantee you that ruling's coming from those two dolts but because you know that v, that that RV that that doesn't pay for itself. And, you know, and, who, you know, how about the gas on that sucker? Yeah, exactly. Um, but the main ruling today comes down. A federal appeals court on Tuesday said that Donald Trump is not immune from prosecution for alleged crimes. Guilty, 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 guilty. Well, they didn't rule on that, but I'll say guilty, 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 guilty. Uh, crimes he committed during his presidency, flatly rejecting Trump's arguments. Hello that he shouldn't have to go on trial on federal election subversion charges. In a striking 57-page unanimous opinion, the panel for three D.C. Circuit judges wrote that the justice system allowed for a former president to face charges for actions he took while in office and that the public interest in holding a potentially criminal president accountable outweighed any potential chilling effect on the presidency. We cannot accept that the office of the president places its former occupants above the law for all time thereafter, the opinion says. Former President Trump lacked any lawful discretionary authority to defy federal criminal law, and he's answerable in courts for his conduct, the judges added. Trump has pledged to appeal this until until Monday to ask the Supreme Court to temporarily block the ruling to delay his case against again from heading to trial. Now, I, I think the Supreme Court will weigh on this. It will be very interesting if they block this, because then maybe, maybe a, a Gorsuch or a Barrett Maybe even a Kavanaugh, they're starting to, they're getting, they're getting their chain pulled and they're saying, you know, here's why you're here. So find a way to rule on this so that he's immune. But my gut feeling is, is that the Supreme Court will agree to hear this appeal, but they will allow the appeals court ruling to take effect. It's not certain how long the Supreme Court could take to consider such a request or an appeal, which would come as a special counsel. Jack Smith seeks to bring Trump to trial. An early March trial date's already been postponed. Here are the key takeaways. Presidents do not have unbound authority to commit crimes. Throughout their opinion, judges Karen LaCraft Henderson, Florence Pan, and J. Michelle Childs rejected all of Trump's arguments of sweeping protections around the presidency. It would be a striking paradox if the president, who alone is vested with the constitutional duty to take care of the laws, be faithfully executed were the sole officer capable of defying those laws with impunity, the appeals court wrote on Tuesday. Trump's stances in court, the judges wrote, stand in contrast with the principle that all Americans, including former presidents, are subject to the same laws. Childs and Pan were appointed by Biden. Henderson was appointed by H.W. Bush. The judges, and they were unanimous. And they also ruled that Trump's behavior in the 2020 election could be criminal. The judges were clear that the charges against Trump are serious, left no question they believe that can be pro- uh, that they can be prosecuted. The panel repeatedly eviscerated Trump's alleged behavior in the 2020 presidential election as 
unpresidential and constituting an assault on the American institutions. We cannot accept former Trump's claim, <laughs> former Trump, former President Trump's claim that a president has unbound authority to commit crimes that would neutralize the most fundamental check of executive power. This recognition and implementation of election results, the judges wrote, nor can we sanction his apparent contention that the executives has, executive has carte blanche to violate the law, rights of individual citizens to vote and have their votes counted. The panel describes Trump as using his seat of power to unlawfully overstay his term as president and to displace his duly elected successor, all of which would violate generally accepted criminal laws. Former President Trump's alleged efforts to remain in power despite losing the 2020 election were, if proven, an unprecedented assault on the structure of our government, the panel wrote. He allegedly injected himself into a process which all president has no role, the counting and certifying of election college results, uh, electoral college revolt, results, rather, thereby undermining constitutionally established procedures and the will of Congress, the con judges added. At the basic level, the three judges wrote that the conduct alleged in Trump's criminal indictment conflicts with his constitutional duties as president and violated the constitutionally established design for determining the results of the presidential election as well as the Electoral Count Act of 1887, neither of which establishes a role for the president in the counting and or certifying of the Electoral College votes. Uh, there's a lot more here. And like I said, they dotted I's and crossed T's. They basically called him out and said, no, you cannot claim immunity when you are so blatantly trying to commit crimes. And that's exactly what's going on here. That is exactly what Donald Trump criminal. That's what this is. Let's take a break. We'll come on back more on this story. We'll keep up to date with everything as well. It's the Matt McNeil show. Stay lights off you sip like coffee. Wake up, change your mind and drop me. Love to hate me crazy. Shady spit me all like hot wasabi. Lick me up. It is the Matt McNeil Show on your Tuesday, 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. Once again, we're keeping an eye on the current uh, Howler Monkey exhibit in the U.S. House. The Republicans trying to impeach uh, Department of Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas. Uh, they have not gotten to the vote yet, but once again, it sounds like I think they have two votes they can wager and two Republicans have already said they're not going to do this because they don't want the Democrats to start throwing out Republican cabinet members. So, uh, yeah, uh, we'll have to see. Would I be surprised if there was a we will we will throw you out of the Republican Party unless you vote along with this threats going on? I, I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised in the least bit, but Ken Buck is one of them and he's actually retiring. So you're not going to, you're not going to scare him necessarily into doing this. And frankly, I think that, you know, I wouldn't be surprised that if that was the tone they were taking, I was like, you know what, I'll let you guys defend my seat without me in it. So, um, Part of the ruling, uh, by the way, was exceptionally notable because the same court had avoided weighing on Trump's January 6th actions and appeals and lawsuits against him. So basically, they, the, 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 the fact that they weighed in on this and they said, no, you can't do what you did and not think there's, going to, there's not going to be criminal actions. And they also, for the first time, said there is nothing that says the, the president has no authority to insert themselves into the counting of the electoral college votes, which he did. Undeniably, undeniably, he did. And, yep, yeah, so there you go. I mean, you know, Donald Trump, this is the first day I've said to myself, 
you know what? He end up. He might actually end up going to jail. My guess is he's he'd flee to Russia or Saudi Arabia. He'd flee there and and hide overseas and and basically do his Twitter posts and 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 act like he's been there's a grand injustice. But I think that they will find you know once we find out the the all the evidence against him, and once again, even if you are a diehard Trump fan. The appeals court basically said the president can't insert themselves into the electoral counting process. He did. End of story. Game over. Scoreboard. It's over. That case is, this is why he's got his lawyer saying, I, I just draw pictures on the ground with a dirt and a stick. I don't computer. What are you talking about? Uh... Vital public interest in letting the trial proceed weighed heavily in the court through the 57-page ruling. The judges repeatedly referred to the public interest of letting the Trump trial move forward. They cited the public interest in accountability for potential crimes committed by the former president and how that overcame Trump's argument that immunity was necessary to protect the institution of the presidency. We conclude that the interest of criminal accountability held by both the public and the executive branch outweighs the potential risks of chilling presidential action and uh, permitting uh, vexatious lit- litigation. The judges wrote in their opinion, we have balanced former President Trump's asserted interests in executive immunity against the vital public interests that favor allowing the prosecutor prosecution to proceed. The judges flatly reject Trump's claim that the, his criminal indictment could have a chilling effect on future administrations. Trump argues that presidents might be more hesitant to act if they were concerned about the prospect of criminal charges. Well, if you're committing a crime, You know, can I just say this? If a future president says, wait a second, if I shoot this person, they might charge me with murder. I'm good with that. I'm good with that. Studying the hand a little bit. I I guess that's just me, though. The appeals court pointed that past presidents to, to refute Trump, the judges noted that Gerald Ford issued a full pardon of Nixon after Nixon's resignation and that Bill Clinton cut a deal, including a paying in fine and temporarily giving up his law license to avoid possible criminal charges while an independent prosecutor investigated him. The panel won on a quote that in ex- Nixon era Supreme Court ruling about the bounds of presidential immunity, saying the federal prosecution of a former president fits the case when judicial action is needed to serve broad public interest in order to vindicate the public interest in an ongoing criminal prosecution. These findings were consistent with the rationale provided uh, by Chutkin, who similarly uh, similarly dismantled Trump's immunity claims in a resounding fashion last year. And it's like I said, uh, this is the first time, though. I mean, now you've got the appeals court basically unanimously backing them up and writing a very, very terse response to the Trump administration's argument that you can't hold him accountable. And like I said, and they're getting into details and points of his crimes now. So um, they also waited on the impeachment acquittal argument. This is what they've said. Well, it's funny because they they argue that the only way you can hold someone accountable was, you know, it, you know, it's, it's all political if you impeach them. So politics shouldn't play a role in it. But then Trump said, oh, it's all legal. The impeachment was legal, so he's acquitted of all charges. The judges also rejected Trump's argument that because the Senate did not convict him on the charge of inciting an insurrection in the wake of the Capitol riot in 2021, he cannot be charged criminally for the same crime. Other courts have rejected this tortured interpretation of the law. The judges wrote, adding that former President Trump's reliance on a negative implication is an immediate red flag. 
Trump's reading of the Constitution, the judges added, well, he can't read. Come on. <laughs> uh, you know, he looks, he looks at the pictures in the stroke test, and he sees the whale, and he sees his, his second wife. I mean, come on, man. It's like, you think this guy reads? You know, this is not exactly Johnny Rosetta Stone over here. <laughs> reads. Uh, Mr. President, I've got you a picture book about the Constitution. Picture book! The ketchup is Thomas Jefferson. Uh, where was I? Um, free to commit. Uh, courts rejected the torture argument. Um, the judges wrote that former president's reliance on negative implications is immediate red flag. Trump's reading of the Constitution, the judges added, would leave the president free to commit all manner of crimes with impunity as long as he does not impeach and convicted. During the impeachment trial in 2021, several Republican senators who voted to acquit Trump, because, uh, including Senate GOP leader Mitch McConnell, said they're doing so because the courts and justice systems could still hold Trump accountable. In the decision, the judges also noted that impeachment proceedings are political in nature and acquittals in Congress are often unrelated to factual innocence. The 43 senators who voted to acquit him relied on a variety of concerns, many of which had nothing to do with whether he committed a, the charged offense, they wrote. Um, the key part of the Trump's legal strategy has been to delay his criminal cases until after the 2024 election, and the four weeks between oral arguments in the appeals court and Tuesday ruling it already meant next month's March 4th trial date has been scrapped. Perhaps to speed things along, the appeals court established his six-day schedule for Trump to respond to Tuesday's ruling, giving Trump until February 12th to file an emergency request with the Supreme Court to ask for the case to be put on hold to hear his appeal. That would stop the clock while his attorneys craft a more substantial appeal to the merits. The criminal case could not resume until after the high court decides what to do with his request for pause. The Supreme Court, however, can take as long as it likes to each step. The justices determine how long the Justice Department will have to respond to any Trump petition, how long Trump has to respond to the controls when, he make, uh, when they make the ruling. Trump's team can also appeal to the full D.C. Circuit to make up the case again, but the appeals court on Tuesday said that would only pause his trial further if a majority of judges on the D.C. court agreed to hear the case again in an unlikely scenario. If Trump does not appeal the ruling, the case would be sent back to the trial-level court in D.C. as soon as next week. And once again, to my knowledge, what they can do is say, we're not going to stop this from being enacted, but we'll hear it. And But this trial is still going forward. We'll have to see if that's the case, what happens there. Let's take a break. Come on back. It's the Matt McNeil Show. When my depression works the graveyard shift all of the people. Broadcasting in the evening right here on... Uh, WCPT, 820 Chicago's Progressive Talk, and in the afternoons on AM 950, the Progressive Voice of Minnesota, it is the Matt McNeil Show, 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. Once again, keeping up to date on the impeachment vote on the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas. Uh, the, um, once again, it sounds like enough Republicans have said that they're not going to go along with this, that this is a moot point. Now, once again, are their arms being twisted? I'm going to guess... <laughs> Considering Roy Rage, uh, you know, uh, Taylor Green over there is, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm guessing she's trying to break every arm she can to try to get this to happen. But I just don't think it is. And so at the end of the at the end of all this, you, you guys demanded a bill to go deal with the border. 
you said you're gonna you 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 wanted to hold Mayorkas accountable for what's going on the border, and yet here you are. Not only did you guys turn away a bill which was a freaking sweetheart deal for the Republicans, that bill was a sweetheart deal, and just watch the Border Patrol Union go after Fox News for bad mouth in this bill. Holy God, they've been they've gone after all these Republicans who have said no, this was a bad deal. No, no, no. They they were like this is a great idea. This was going to advance things more than they've been advanced in 40 years on the border. Not only that, but if if it holds true and a few Republicans hold out, guess what? They don't get rid of Mayorkas either. And they basically get to sit there and sit there and go, we sent a message. Yeah, you guys are a bunch of freaking idiots. That's the message you sent. One paragraph uh, in Tuesday's ruling that basically said, Trump, you are susceptible to go to jail. Uh, you, you can be held accountable for your crimes. Uh, one paragraph of Tuesday's ruling caught the attention of legal experts who are also watching the 14th Amendment insurrection ban case as being argued in the Supreme Court on Thursday. The case uh, cases are entirely separate. This is a criminal prosecution against Trump. The upcoming Supreme Court case is a civil attempt to remove Trump from state ballots, though. Further, the appeals court findings and explanations on Tuesday ruling are not binding to the Supreme Court in any capacity in that case with Colorado. Nonetheless, the appeals ruling refers uh, refers described the president as a officer. There is an open legal question being argued Thursday before the Supreme Court over whether the presidency is an office under the United States or and whether the president is an officer as described in the insurrection ban. The appeals court ruling said it would be a striking paradox if the president, who alone is vested with the constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, were the sole officer capable of defying those laws with impunity. So, once again, they basically came on back and said, no, you are an officer. You, 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 you assume the office. And I, I can't put my warning flags up enough on this. The only way he gets out of this is if he wins the election somehow and he just scraps the entire system. What this appeals court is basically saying is we do are still a country of laws and rules. And he is hearing that, which basically means we got to shut down the courts. We got to shut down the Congress. We have to basically put him in power and he's the only power that exists. And that's what has to happen. Make no mistake, what this has done is, and and these judges that keep delaying his court cases, what they're doing is getting him to a point where he can basically go out there and scrap the entire system of democracy we have so that he doesn't get held accountable. Jams as much, billions of dollars in his pocket. Heck, at that point, my guess would be he would just back up a bus to the treasury, tell them, load it up, boys. I want all $1,000 in $10,000 bills. And he would drive it off, basically leave the country, leave his vice president in charge, say, you get to rebuild democracy somehow. Just make sure you pardon me after I've taken all this money. I'm dead serious. That's where this guy is going because it's his only way out. And it's crazy. It's, it's absolutely crazy. We are in a world right now where this actually could happen. That he, you know, he, this actually could happen, but 
that's the world we're living in. And once again, you may not like Joe Biden as much as you like other politicians. That's fine. That's fine. But at the end of the day, in the worst case scenario, Joe Biden's an Arby's beef and cheddar. Not the meal you really want, although I do like a good beef and cheddar. Oh, those are tasty. Not the meal that you maybe want, but it's still edible food. Donald Trump is an actual crap sandwich. Feces between two pieces of bread. That is who Donald Trump is. It's not food. It will kill you. It's toxic. It's the human centipede buffet, for God's sakes. You, yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. I mean, this is afternoon. What am I saying? No, you, you, you have to make sure you keep that in perspective. I'm not happy with Joe Biden on some things. In Minnesota here, I wasn't happy with Governor Tim Walls on some things. But you'd be a fool if you thought for one second that I wasn't going to be showing up to the polls and voting for Tim Walls back in 2022. Of course I was. Same thing goes here. And no matter what your issue is that you say, Joe Biden's let me down, trust me. Go look at what Trump's saying he's going to do. Because if you're upset about what Joe Biden's going to do, then you'll be sitting there because there's a lot of people that were in, when it, when it came down to it in 2017, that when Trump started to do these things, they were also, we sent a message, we, did, we sent a message. And then all of a sudden, Trump started doing Trump things. Well, we didn't think that was going to happen. You didn't. You should have. You are dealing with someone, there is this naivete that we have with a guy like Trump, that he's running for president because he wants to be like, well, you know, he wants to be like like Lincoln or Reagan or something like this. He, he's to, no, he's running for president because it's the biggest grift of all time. He can look at the billions, billions that his daughter walked away with, daughter and husband walked away with from that their, their term in office. All the Chinese patents, all the money from the Saudis, all the business relationships that go that went through Jared. It's the biggest grift of all time. You're a fool if you don't think that Donald Trump sold national secrets to the highest bidder in foreign governments. That's why he had all that stuff down at Mar-a-Lago. You guys get all upset because Joe Biden had a folder in his garage. Dude, he had boxes and boxes, and there still is tons of stuff. And now we're finding out about secret rooms at Mar-a-Lago. The idea that he wanted to run because he just wanted to be that guy in a Norman Rockwell painting who, who's a hardworking guy. He didn't even have time to go home and change his clothes. He just came to the town meeting dirty from a hard day's work. And he's got an idea. And he's white, of course, because it's Norman Rockwell. <coughs> but it's, he's got an idea. And he stands up and he speaks before the audience. And all the people, the banker and the, the elderly guy and the veteran, they're all looking up at him like, yeah, he's got it. For, well, for white America. But he's got it. That's not why Donald Trump ran for office. And at this point, that large, pathetic, orange tumor on our country is now painted into a corner. 
and his only option is to get probably one of those big helicopters because he's a big boy. You know, yeah, two fifteen, sure. Uh, you know, he, he, they're going to have to lift him out of here and take him to Russia or take him to Saudi Arabia and hide him from prosecution, or he somehow manages to win the election of twenty twenty four and immediately dismantles democracy itself because. Even these judges are saying, no, you, you get to be held accountable. So the only option he would have is to, to basically get military leaders. Let's go back to Tommy Tuberville, the stupidest man to ever become a senator. Tommy Tuberville down in Alabama, who's basically making sure only certain army officials get leadership roles. To find military people that are, that are subservient to Trump overthrow the Congress, overthrow the Supreme Court, basically say my rules, my way, and basically make all this stuff go away. Probably a few summary summary executions. And then he'll come back and say, well, but now I saw Darbo again. Saw Darbo again. Just... Yes, you can never, you can never prosecute me. We've, we've, we've written that into law now. Marjorie, Speaker Marjorie Taylor Greene has basically made sure that that's the law of the land. You can never, ever, ever hold me accountable. Now we'll go back, okay? You think that, that that's this is not me exaggerating at this point. This ruling makes what's going to happen painfully clear if Donald Trump wins again painfully clear 952-946-6205 two more things uh first of all and that are involve legal things actually three things that involve legal things this news day is nuts any of these other ones would probably be the primary thing i just spent 45 minutes on that one because it was so huge uh Egeron, uh the uh the judge judge Egeron, uh, Egeron, uh from new york he has demanded answers from the former president's lawyers in a new mail email suggesting Trump is even more trouble, said the Daily Beast. The New York Times reported last week that longtime Trump, former Trump uh, organization chief financial officer Alan Weisselberg is in talks with Manhattan prosecutors to plead guilty to perjury after a Forbes article discredited his claims about Trump's inflated penthouse apartment value. Weisselberg was abruptly pulled from the stand in Trump's fraud trial after the article was published. As the presiding magistrate, the trier of fact, and the judge of credibility, I, of course, want to know whether Mr. Weisselberg is now changing his tune and whether he's admitting he lied under oath in my courtroom at this trial, uh, he wrote in an email to Trump's legal team in the New York Attorney General's office. He also noted that Weisselberg's lies could be used to completely toss out everything he has said in defense of the company and even allow the judge to make negative inter in, uh, inferences about the Trump organization's fraudulent conduct. Although the Times article focuses on the seas of Trump Tower penthouse, his testimony on other topics could also be called into question. I, I also may use this as a basis to invoke falsus in uno, uh, the judge said, referring to the maxim false in one thing, false in everything. I do not want to get, ignore anything in case of this magnitude, he added. Trump's lawyers have until 5 p.m. on Wednesday to respond to that. How is he going to respond to that? He doesn't have a computer, man. Ha! <laughs> He's sitting there with his Game Boy. Oh, I just, uh, I'll, I'll figure this out eventually. Game Boy. Um, how about another story? So there you have, yeah, Weisselberg. Now we know why the judge put off the ruling in that case. He basically said Weisselberg is, is dead to rights perjuring himself. And 
part of his testimony is going to impact the penalty that is handed down on the Trump business case. So now he needs to hear about that. So that's not going away anytime soon. Now here's another one. This has nothing to do with Trump, although it has to do with the the inertia of Trump in the post-Roe v. Wade ruling where in Texas they tried to make an argument um, that basically that mifepristone, um, this was the, 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 the drug, the abortion drug, was dangerous. And they quoted a story about it. And now the study that was the basis of these, these court you know, filings has been removed. Two studies used to justify a crackdown on mifepristone access were retracted on Monday by the scientific publisher Sage over undeclared conflicts of interest with anti-abortion groups and a lack of scientific rigor used in the research. So basically they're saying it was a bunch of anti-abortion people that were putting this out and they didn't do their scientific research because they were not looking for actual science. They were looking for opinion. Both the studies have been used by anti-abortion plaintiffs and conservative federal judges in Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine versus FDA to cast doubt on the FDA's longstanding approval of the drug, which was is, is used in the most common method of abortion in the United States. The case is scheduled to go before the U.S. Supreme Court next month. The academic publisher said in a statement that it took a closer look at the studies to respond to the reader's concerns. Sage confirmed that all but one of the article's authors had an affiliation with one or more of Charlotte Lozier Institute, Elliott Institute, the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists, all pro-life advocacy organizations, despite having declared they have no conflicts of interest when they submitted the article for publication or in the article itself. Which, once again, you're learning a little legal stuff. You can't do that. You can't have that kind of a close tie and then think that you're going to be able to basically separate that out. Let's take a break. Come on back. Even more when we do return. It's the Matt McNeil Show. It's the Matt McNeil Show on your Tuesday. Oh, by the way, a few things. We're going to get Patrick Cooligan from the Minnesota Reformer in the 4 o'clock hour. Uh, also, we've got, uh, we're going to be talking to uh, Rotary International. they got their big event coming into town here. Uh, that's going to be talking about that. And also, it's Listener Appreciation Week, uh, Listener Appreciation Month, I should say, on the Mothership AM 950 in Minneapolis, St. Paul. we got some tickets to give away coming up in the 4 o'clock hour, 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. So back to the Mifflepristone story, because this is major. Because once again, this is people have pointed this is a flawed store, a flawed study anyway. And the people that put the study out have now determined that these doctors that supposedly did this research did not disclose all of them outside of one seem to have been connected to anti-abortion groups. And on top of that, they didn't do their research. As a result of Sage inquiring into the author's conflict of interest, Sage became aware that the peer reviewer who evaluated the article for the initial publication was also affiliated with Charlotte Lozier Institute at the time of the review, a.k.a. a notorious anti-abortion group. Researchers James Studnicki and Teresa Longbonds said in a statement on a state newsroom that it, the retractions constituted a baseless ideological attack on our scientific research and experts. Basically, you figured us out. Now we're just going to call it. It's like it's it's it's. Count it, it, it's it's the woke culture coming after us. Woke, woke, woke. That's what they're gonna say. Also today, and this was I, I'm I can't tell you how happy I am they found her guilty. A jury has found Jennifer Crumbie 
whose son killed four students at a Michigan high school, a mass shooting in 2021, guilty of manslaughter, a crime she was charged with because she and her husband gave her then 15-year-old son a gun despite his behavioral issues. Crumbly, 45, was found guilty on all four counts of involuntary manslaughter prosecutors charged her with over her role in the deadly shooting at Oxford High School in Michigan's Oxford Township. It's believed to be the first time the parents of a shooter have been held accountable for their child's actions. Each charge carries a maximum penalty of 15 years. Her sentencing is scheduled for April 9th. Prosecutors argued that she and her husband, James Crumbly, who is set to go stand trial next month, were responsible for their 15-year-old son Ethan's rampage because they bought him uh, a semi-automatic handgun just days before he opened fire at school, even though their son was struggling with mental state and exhibiting disturbing behavior. In her closing arguments on February 2nd, Oakland County Prosecutor Karen McDonald said there were several things Jennifer Crumbly could have done to stop the shooting. Hours before the killings took place, when the school called her and her husband onto campus to discuss disturbing images Ethan had drawn of guns and gunshot victims, McDonald said that Jennifer Crumbly's got not only dismissed school's officials' concerns, but also failed to inform them she'd recently given her son a gun. So, you know... By the way, as much as they, I, I, what do you bet she sat there and was like, look at this school getting woke. You're getting all woke. And then her son, and then all of a sudden it's, it wasn't me. It was everybody else. I, why don't you, why do you have to hold me accountable? Um, the, 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 the thing about this is none of uh, uh, the, uh, basically in a closing argument, say that, uh, um, McDonald said that Jennifer Crumley's not only dismissed school officials' concerns, but didn't tell her about her son having a gun. The tragic thing about it is none of that was hard. McDonald said of the actions Jennifer Crumbly could have taken, including go home after the meeting with school officials to check on if the gun was securely stored away. Prosecutors also noted that the months before the shooting, Ethan had texted his mom that he was hearing voices and seeing demons. And in text to friends, he said his mother laughed when he asked her to get help, him some medical help. In a journal, he wrote, I want to help, but my parents don't listen to me, so I can't get any help. I have zero help for my mental problems, and it's causing me to shoot, shoot up the blank school. Jennifer Crumbly's son was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole last December. Her defense team largely shifted the blame to her husband, saying he was the parent with firearm knowledge and the one who actually purchased the gun for Ethan. They also argued that the couple truly didn't know the extent of their son's behavioral issues. Yeah, but you, you sure laughed at that. God. It rains, it pours, man, with news. All right. We got uh, in Minnesota, just FYI, I got a new Senate DFL leader for you. We'll, we'll talk about that when we get into the top of the hour news here. Finally, and we're still keeping track of this story because uh, let me just shuffle through my briefs here and see if I got an update here. This is on the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas impeachment vote. Uh, they're out, the last I checked, they were out doing their. Um, they're out doing their, their, their posturing on this here. They, they, they're doing the debates on whether they should uh, impeach him. Once again, you got two Republicans who've said that he is not going to, um, that, that, that they shouldn't do this. And that's all you need to not have a majority. And so, yeah, that's, this is not going to, this is not going to go anywhere. I just don't think there are no updates here, but I do want to mention this. This is representative Mark green. Now this was before apparently Marjorie Taylor green also went on a bit of a racist rant because it should be noted that Mayorkas uh, is, um, is, is, is Jewish. Um, and so Mark Green was first up. Now, I haven't really gone through the Marjorie Taylor Green things, but uh, I'll, you know, I'll let uh, 
you know, uh, you know, Jose Canseco over there. I'll, I'll deal with her tomorrow. Representative Mark Green, the chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee, reportedly referred to Mayorkas as a reptile during a private meeting with GOP colleagues earlier on Tuesday. This reptile has no blank to resign like Nixon did, Green said, according to political reporter Olivia Beavers. The comment could uh, certainly be read as anti-Semitic slur against Mayorkas, who is Jewish. In its glossary of anti-Semitic terms, the American Jewish Committee says that creatures like reptilian men and other subhuman monsters are often used as a form of coded anti-Semitism. And it's Mark Green from Tennessee, for God's sakes. I mean, it's not exactly like we're drawing (laughs) a web here. This is a pretty freaking straight line from A to B. Okay, let's just call it what it is. Green leads the committee that advanced the two articles of impeachment against Mayorkas and is helping run the House floor debate. His apparent use of the ugly slur against the Homeland Security Secretary comes after his committee used charged language in its report about impeaching Mayorkas. The committee said it it was deporting Mayorkas from his job. Mayorkas immigrated the United States from Cuba when he was one years old. But hey, what's a little racism and bigotry because... Let's face it, that's who the Republicans are trying to appeal to most of all. The racists and the bigots. Israel, do you see this? Can I just, do you guys see any of this? Do you? There are about four more stories I didn't even have time to get out. This is a nuts news day, man. Uh, I'll try to get as much of this stuff posted as I can online later on. Uh, Just, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's been a busy one. We'll keep an eye on the Mallorca's thing as well coming in the 4 o'clock hour. Chicago, have a good day. We will talk to you on a Wednesday with Jeff Stein, Minneapolis, St. Paul. Hour 2 up next. Hour number 2 of the show here on your Tuesday. Matt, Patrick, Brett here. Lots to get to today. A lot to get to uh, today. Is it, it is a really busy news day. Uh, we, I'm just going to do, we're going to do kind of a little rapid fire. Okay, we're going to have to because I got to try to get as much of this stuff in as possible uh, here. First of all, I want to mention, it sounds like Aaron Murphy has been elected. Now, you and you and Cooligan, we're, I, we'll preview this. You and Cooligan kind of speculate about the new who the new DFL leader is going to be, correct? Yeah, we do a little speculating on which direction they might go. And Murphy was certainly one of the names that we were thinking would be a favorite as uh, landing that majority leader job. Well, and I don't think that that's, that's too much, much of a shocker and any, any kind of, you know, surprise. Uh, you know, and so, yeah, Aaron Murphy, and, and what, what makes this interesting is this. Reminder, she ran to a point against uh, Walls for the governor's race, and Walls basically kind of kiboshed the whole nurses thing. Aaron Murphy's really big on the nurses union. I'm going to guess there's going to be a little butting of heads on that issue. Again, this upcoming session, that could be the case there. So we have that issue coming up here. Um, I do want to mention this just, you know, this is not breaking, but they're, they're, remember when we talked about they were thinking about doing a Prince musical? And I said, "There's no yes. way in the planet you could start it anywhere. You have to, you have to debut it in Minneapolis. They're going to debut it in Minneapolis. The Prince musical Purple Rain will prepare in Minneapolis before going to Broadway. Now, before anyone starts saying I got to go get tickets, they haven't even cast this thing yet. You know, um, yeah, I'm I, maybe I could play the drummer in the the doctor's outfit, man. I, I, you know, the you know the medical guy. Any kind I, of extra role would be worth it in that. That's going to be a good show. <laughs> okay, no, it's not a movie. You'd yeah. have to be up on stage, yeah. an extra on the stage. It's just going to have you kind of, you know, no, we're not going to. Well, yeah, yeah. I have enough of white guy dancing from the '80s. In, no, we're done with that. We're not going to do and that. There's Matt McNeil in the background of this great dance. Hi scene, there. Right? I'm dancing. No, no, no. Uh, they. Want, they want this. 
I would say you said who they get to play Prince. I think yeah. The reality is, is Bruno Mars is the only one that came close, and he can't play guitar. So, <laughs> so you still have a. I think this is going to be a search. I think there's going to be a search for for him on that one. So there's that. the The big story today, um, in and I, you know, it's yeah, as as you know. Everyone's talking about this. Lutzen, Minnesota. Two chimneys were all that were left standing after piles of rubble, uh, burned rubble Thursday, on Tuesday morning during the uh, and, and after the historic Lutzen Lodge on Lake Superior destroyed the treasure destination for generations of Minnesotans. Pockets of the wooden structure were still crackling with flames at midday. The firefighters were still on the scene. Thick, smoky haze filled the air. Nearby trees were charred, and the plume of uh, water showered down on them. What remained a smoky foundation of the historic lodge. It's a natural disaster, said Edward Venegas, uh, the general manager for the past five years, who was at the site taking photos. It contained uh, contain to us, but it's a natural disaster. So the uh, state fire marshal is investigating. It sounds like it started in the main hall on the floor in there somewhere. Now, the first thing I would think about is, you, do you have electrical outlets in those? You know, Because oh, yeah. a lot of places have electrical plugins for like vacuums and stuff in the middle of the floor. I wonder if that's where it would happen. They did not have anyone staying there overnight so no one oh, was good. injured no one no damn good good news there no one injured no one hurt but yeah this is this is i i know a lot of people i i was there 25 years ago i went up there um lovely place um i know a lot of people that were it was an annual tradition for them to go up there so a big loss for the north shore yeah hopefully they can get that rebuilt at some point apparently it has been uh, I want to mention this. Uh, they, they, I mean, it has burned down before. Um, okay. You know, fifty one, nineteen fifty one. It burnt down. Uh, th- that was, and they, apparently they've had on and off fires before over there. So this one lasted seventy years. That's not a bad run. That's not they've a had bad. That. Yeah. Yes, it's got it fifty five. You know. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I'm good there. There. Okay, we got to get to the interview here, but we have to as well take some time to talk about Listener Appreciation Month here on AM 950. Because once again, this is our way of saying um, thank you very much to the listener. And and, and by the way, I I, I do want to make sure I I take a quick moment here. Tom Gump going to join us, Rotary International. They got the big announcement about the 2029 uh, get together they're having here in Minneapolis. We'll talk to him coming up later on this hour. Uh, Patrick Cooligan with the Minnesota Reformer. But right now, let's talk about. Thanking the listeners because uh, listener appreciation month. This is long overdue. We uh, have we, we we would not be here if not for you guys. And every day we get to do this, it's just an absolute pleasure because I get to interact with you, and it is just so much fun. And we sure do love it quite a bit. We have all sorts of. Can we announce any of the final stuff? And not, not yet. Not, not yeah, the yeah. big grand prize, but people yeah. are going to want that. You people will are going to go crazy for that. Yeah, they're going to go crazy for that. Uh, we have uh, other things we're going to be giving away all month long, including gift certificates to restaurants, uh, other Twin Cities events coming up here. Uh, but uh, we are right now this week, uh, there's a few ways for you to enter in to possibly win yourself tickets to the listener appreciation event we're having next Tuesday, a week from today, in uh, at 6 to 8 p.m., um, this is just a, an event to get a get together where we are going to say hi and and I'll be there. Uh, some of the other station staff will be there. Uh, some of the on air hosts will be there. We're just there to say hi, and it's for you. It's an but, event for you guys. I was going to say we just did good confirmation. Robert's going to be there, and so will Greg Bakken. So we'll have the whole crew. We'll be all out Meet there. Them all. Yeah. Uh, but there you know, not that, ways for you to possibly get tickets. Now, first of all, you need to go to our Facebook page, right? Yep, our Facebook page at AM nine fifty Radio. That is one way where you can. 
enter the contest for your chance to win. Basically, all you need to do is either like our page or like any of the content you see on our page. I'm streaming there now, folks. You can like that. And there's a lot to like. Uh, So you like like or follow anything on our our Facebook page. Yep, and like our page as well. Okay. And you'll be having a chance to win those tickets. The newsletter as well. Uh, we have, uh, the, you can sign up for the newsletter. That's at am950radio.com, right? am950radio.com. What's happening during the month of February? We are sending out e-newsletter blasts on Mondays and Thursdays. So we got another one coming up on Thursday, and it's super simple. All you need to do is to reply to that email with your name and your phone number, and you'll be entered for a chance to win. That simple. Just reply to our newsletter that's sent out Mondays and Thursdays. If you didn't receive our Monday, make sure you sign up at am950radio.com, and you'll get that Thursday edition. All right, and here's the other deal. Uh, we are giving away tickets, and guess what? Right now, I'm going to give away a pair of tickets to the Listener Appreciation Event coming up here a week from tonight. Uh, we're going to be out at the Park Tavern. Uh, so your chance right now to win a pair of tickets to the Listener Appreciation Event, all you have to do is be caller number 5 at 952-946-6205. That's 952-946-6205. Be caller number 5. You'll win yourself a pair of tickets to the Listener Appreciation Event, and uh, you will join us a week from Tuesday over at the Park Tavern. So look for that. Uh, while we're doing that, uh, you and Patrick Cooligan, what are the other things you guys are talking about? Yeah, as we alluded to, we talked a little bit about that race for the DFL Senate Majority Leader. Uh, we're also going to be talking about uh, that Ilhan Omar controversy last week and a little bit more about uh, how the Minnesota reformer was able to prove these uh, Republicans wrong who were trying to say that Ilhan Omar was making statements that she didn't make. And then we'll touch on Aaron Brown's column talking about U.S. Steel possibly being bought by another conglomerate company. I have something for Brad Finstad coming up later on this hour. Ah, I got something for Brad Finstad. Special for him. Just, right. for, Brad, just for Opie. I'm sure he's looking one. forward to it. <laughs> Caller number 5, 952-946-6205. Caller number 5, 952-946-6205. You'll join us for the listener appreciation event. Uh, here it is. It's Patrick Cooligan right here on AM. It's Patrick Cooligan with Brett right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Brett Johnson with you here on a Tuesday afternoon. And as usual, we are joined by Patrick Kulikan, who is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. Uh, make sure you go to minnesotareformer.com for the latest in Minnesota news and politics. I have a lot of stories to talk through today, including a column that Aaron Brown wrote about this uh, possible um, U.S. steel being bought out by a Japanese company and facing a lot of pushback on the Iron Range. We're going to talk about what that means and why uh, these unions on the Iron Range are pushing for another buyer of U.S. steel. We'll also be talking about the uh, DFL picking a new Senate majority leader, as well as last week's Ilhan Omar controversy. Patrick, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. So let's start off talking a little bit about this Ilhan Omar controversy from last week. Obviously, uh, uh, you've probably heard about this before listening to the stations. We won't spend a ton on ton of time on it, at least in terms of the background. But uh, just in case you missed what happened, Ilhan Omar continues to face criticism and, well, calls from Republicans to resign, including, I believe, even a... Uh, an order from Marjorie Taylor Greene to try to remove her from the House. Tom Emmer has also said she resign, she should resign. And why? Well, because Republicans are basing their argument on a flawed translation of a speech she made at the Minneapolis Hyatt a little over a week ago. 
The translation under dispute from that speech characterized Omar's comments this way about an agreement signed last month between landlock Ethiopia to give access to the sea by way of Somalia's, way of Somalia's coastline. The U.S. government, this is what they allege, Ilhan Omar said, the U.S. government will only do what Somalians and the U.S. tell them to do. They will do what we want and nothing else. They must follow our orders. Now, you guys over at the Minnesota Reformer had a couple of Somali interpreters go and translate what Ilhan Omar actually said. And as it turns out, that wasn't what she said whatsoever, correct? Right. Um then there's a there's a lot of red flags here that yeah. that uh, people uh, should have uh, detected if they were really interested in the truth of what she was saying. Well, I suspect uh, they weren't. I think uh, they decided that uh, she was speaking in Somali, and that was going to be enough to uh, to get some of their base riled up. And uh, and then they had this uh, translation, mistranslation uh, that was posted. I should note by a political foe, it was somebody from Somaliland, which is this breakaway republic that's not recognized by the United States or the rest of the international community. Um, so you ought to, you should have been skeptical right away. I mean, if if my political opponent posts uh, something about me, I mean, aren't we automatically skeptical? Um, and then there was a couple things in the in the uh, alleged. Uh, English translation, the, the incorrect English translation that also uh, should have raised red flags. One was that she, she said we are Somalians first. That's not how Somali um, people refer to themselves. They, they use the term Somali, not Somalian. And secondly, uh, she uh, purported to have said that we are Somalians first and Muslims second. Um, it's just a Devout Muslims would not say that in a room full of other de- devout Muslims, um, and I, I think that would be true of a lot of religious people on uh, other religions. You, know, you would never say you were a Christian second. I don't think. Um, I went to the University of Notre Dame, and our and, and one of the unofficial mottos was "God, country, Notre Dame." <laughs> it was mm-hmm. it was not uh, um, country, God, Notre Dame. No, nobody would ever say that. And uh, so, so this should have really raised uh, red flags. But instead of doing the basic thing here, which uh, which is what we decided we should do, go out and try to figure, you know, just hire people who who can translate this uh, for us. Somebody like Tom Emmer uh, just says, "Well, it's, she's expressing the Somalia first uh, ideology or worldview, and um, you know, by implication, is not loyal to the United States, and therefore she should decide." resign in disgrace. Um, I, I, I'd love to know if Tom Emmer now is seeing what she actually said, if he still thinks that she should just resign in disgrace, um, or if maybe he should apologize for um, making that allegation about her. Um, but it was also an interesting uh, episode, I thought, for, uh, for the national media, because uh, they... Um, all these other outlets were just reporting this as a kind of typical sort of controversy. Well, people say that she is disloyal or not not expressing loyalty to the United States. She's expressing loyalty to Somalia, and then they would they report that well, she says no, that's not what she said, and nobody actually went out and hired uh, an interpreter to figure out what she actually said, um, and so it was kind of like a a typical. 
uh, episode of national media doing this kind of he said, she said, and who, who could know what the truth is? Well, you could know what the truth is. Um, granted, it's, it wasn't, we had an advantage because obviously there's a lot of certified Somali interpreters, or there's a few anyway, around here. Um, and so uh, we were, I'm glad we were able to do that. But uh, I would hope it would be something of a cautionary tale for everyone. Um, anytime you see something on the Internet, especially in a foreign language, yeah. you should be very uh, wary of what people are saying uh, that uh, it says, because they may be, they have their own agenda. In this case, the person who posted that mistranslation clearly had her own agenda. Absolutely, and especially when we're talking about a foreign language, which, let's be honest, most people are not familiar with and don't know how to speak, you would think your first thing to do would be, well, let's figure out what the translation really said, especially when it's being disputed by the congressperson herself. That would be Ilhan Omar. But as you said, it's very easy just to do the he said, she said thing. Or even as I was talking to my producer, uh, Patrick, before the interview, he was even saying it's almost like Republicans just come up with the call for Ilhan Omar to resign of the week. And it's easy to just chalk that up as saying, well, it's just another Republican call for her to resign when really uh, it's quite a bit more serious when you're literally just misinterpreting what she said and running with wildfire and making calls to resign. I mean, I guess that shouldn't be too surprising. That was going to be my question. Are you surprised at all by the reaction? But I guess if you have a lot of national news outlets that really aren't doing their homework on that, it shouldn't be surprising that it's still this false information is being still bandied about outside, out there. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think that we this is just the, the media age that we live in. Uh, that's, it's been uh, catalyzed by social media and then you have uh, someone like Donald Trump who just threw, uh, I'm mixing some metaphors, and he just kind of threw accelerant on the fire, and it just doesn't, it doesn't seem to matter anymore. And I think, I don't know, there was a time when politicians, I mean, I think we think of politicians as cheating the truth or exaggerating, um, but I think that, you know, there was a time when, in, in recent memory, when I think a politician caught saying something that was like factually untrue, provably untrue, there'd be a little bit of, there'd be not just a little bit, but significant embarrassment around that. And, and it would be reported and the person might, uh, they, they say they misspoke and we, there'd be a whole cycle of that. And then, uh, there seems to be this, this new rule book where you can kind of say whatever you want. And I'm not going to, unfortunately, it's, this is not a, it's not a both sides thing, but it's also not just Republicans doing this. Um, mm-hmm. But there's something that's changed in our political culture where it does seem to be uh, much more okay um, to say things that are untrue. And then when when it's proven that what you said is untrue, you don't have to do anything about it. Uh, I think that's another dispiriting aspect to this. Um, the Florida Governor uh, DeSantis said that uh, he actually said that uh, she should be deported over this, which you can't deport somebody in America. <laughs> this is ridiculous yeah. to begin with. But I was all predicated on this bad translation, and it just everybody just moves on. And yeah, so it's it is a little depressing, frankly. What kind of even makes it more depressing too is I went down the rabbit hole of uh, looking at some of the social media reaction when you guys originally put out your accurate translation of what she said, and it was just a. Uh, 
interesting reading some of the replies saying, well, this person worked for the government and we shouldn't trust them. How do we know these interpreters are accurate? It just kind of a, can make your head spin where even you get those accurate translations and people are still going to bang their head against the wall and say, it's false. That's not what she said. She's still anti-American and so on and so on. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, you know, who are you going to believe, me or your lion eyes? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, you can read more about that story over at minnesotareformer.com, minnesotareformer.com, and you can see what Ilhan Omar really said during that speech at the Hyatt uh, just a little over a week ago. Do you want to move on to some other stories and columns that you guys are uh, covering over at the Minnesota Reformer? And let's talk about this column that Aaron Brown wrote. We've had him on the show before. He's uh, based out of the Iron Range and knows a lot about the situation in terms of labor and also politics on the range. And he wrote a column talking about U.S. steel possibly being bought by another company because back in December, Japanese steel giant Nippon Steel agreed to buy U.S. steel for about $15 billion, more than the company was expected to fetch here in the U.S., Uh, U.S. Steel employs more than 1,800 Minnesotans that are mostly based in the Iron Range, in the Masabi area, I should say, Masabi Range. And the uh, Nippon Steel deal outraged United Steel Workers Union, which preferred that U.S. Steel would be bought by Cleveland Cliffs instead. So this is an interesting column that Aaron wrote because he does talk about some of the unintended consequences of uh, what could happen if they do end up reversing course and being bought by Cleveland Cliffs. But Let's start off with this. Why do the workers prefer working with Cleveland Stiffs rather than this other Japanese company? Because it seems like almost universal opposition from across the political spectrum on this, too, of having a preference for uh, this company being bought by uh, Cleveland Cliffs rather than Nippon Steel in Japan. Yeah, the steel workers, um, their uh, contract, uh, they're, they're looking for their contract to be honored. And and so that's their issue with the uh, with this m- potential merger, and they see uh, Cleveland Cliffs as a much more labor friendly uh, company. But as Aaron points out, I mean, this e- either way, whether it's Nippon Steel buying U.S. Steel or, or Cleveland Cliffs buying U.S. Steel, you're you're getting consolidation. And what do we usually see with consolidation? Generally, um, or at least very often, there's going to be uh, some layoffs. I mean, they're they're going to look for the cost savings. Uh, that that that's sort of the whole point of many of these mergers, and uh, and so that's so what his sort of point that he gets to is that uh, the steel workers maybe ought to be thinking a little more long term about the health of the industry overall, uh, and and whether or not. They really want to um, get into bed, as it were, with the with the Cleveland Cliffs. Um, e- even though, in the end, if Cliffs ends up winning this battle and and becomes this huge, uh, bigger, I should say, uh, steel company, uh, that could lead to layoffs that would be uh, certainly felt on the Iron Range. Yeah, as they'll say, they'll call it something fancy like, well, we're just doing vertical integration at our company, when really what they're doing is just laying a bunch of people off. But it is interesting, that he, as he writes about how this is a very close relationship between the union and Cleveland Cliffs, and something you don't often see in terms of relationships between management and labor, where he basically makes the argument that they've essentially merged, which has been kind of common on the Iron Range, as Aaron and I have talked about in the past. So that just kind of adds another aspect to this. But I'm, I'm with you, that at least in this column that, uh, that Aaron wrote, there probably are going to be layoffs because that almost always happens when we have these big conglomerates end up merging. 
and that'll probably happen within the next few. Usually that doesn't happen right away when you have those uh, types of mergers, but they are probably going to happen, and there are going to be unintended consequences with this merger. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and so I think Aaron is saying um, the steelworkers might pause for a second as they consider um, who they want to be uh, their corporate uh, overlord here. We'll read more about Aaron's column over minnesotareformer.com, minnesotareformer.com, because that is that interesting dynamic of how uh, labor has changed on the iron range that Aaron works writes about. And again, uh, find that column over at the Reformer. And finally, wanted to talk to you about uh, what's happening in the DFL-controlled state Senate, because they are going to need to pick a new Senate majority leader today. That's because current majority leader Carrie Dijic announced that she would be stepping down from her leadership role. Uh, she had been battling cancer during the 2023 session, and she announced last week that, unfortunately, her cancer has returned and that she would be stepping down to focus her attention on her health. Uh, it sounds like she will be staying in the Senate, but just won't have that leadership position anymore. So. I believe even as we speak and are recording this at about 2.50 in the afternoon, uh, the DFL is going through and figuring out who they might elect as their next majority leader. Any thoughts on some of the faces that we might be seeing contend for this position or which direction the DFL might go in terms of a progressive or maybe a more moderate or even a consensus candidate? Uh, What are your thoughts on this race to see who could be the DFL Senate majority leader? Yeah, so it's the intra-caucus politics. Um, very hard to know exactly what's going to happen because you've got these personalities that play and and uh, you've got to gather 18 votes. So um, it, it's different than, than the kind of elections that we're used to covering. Uh, I think they they have a, a very tough job in, in picking someone to replace uh, Dietzik. Um, and certainly we wish her well as she continues to battle cancer. She, she was a, a really... Um, understated, underrated leader of the last session. Um, she's pretty press shy, uh, so it's not like she's out there in the public, but she really had a good understanding for each individual member, what they needed, and um, and how, and, and also how to say no to a member um, when it was going to, when what they wanted was going to be detrimental to the whole caucus. If you think about all of those legislative achievements from last session, uh, you needed um, somebody who was going to uh, put the caucus before her own uh, interests or ambitions, and and she did that. And so you, it's just sort of a strange position of the caucus leadership because you need somebody who's in some ways selfless um, because they really have to be thinking about the members more than themselves, but at the same time they're ambitious. So it's kind of a strange mix, um, and. Uh, Carrie Dietzik, uh was really filled that role ably, and, and pretty, sh- you know, she was only leader for a short time, um, and so now they're, you know, Aaron Murphy, who was the uh, lost the nomination for governor in, in 2018, and uh, came to the state senate. She's was this, the House Majority Leader, so she certainly has experience with legislative leadership. Uh, Nick Friends is a uh, uh, Mankato. Senator, um, I think would, I guess would be described as somewhat centrist. Um, Scott Dibble, Minneapolis, his uh, specialty is uh, transportation issues. The friends does energy issues, um, and then Bobby Joe Champion, 
um, from Minneapolis, uh, who's current Senate president. Um, so maybe he's a, a kind of consensus candidate. Um, last last time they had this leadership battle, I think there was a member or two who said that they, if if the if the caucus went in the direction they didn't like, they would they would leave the caucus. Um, so the problem with the one vote majority is it, it's all it's uh, it's very narrow and and there's no room for error. So uh, we'll be interested to see uh, who they select as their leader. Luckily for them, they don't have an election this year. That only the House is up, so they don't have to worry about that. But the next caucus leader is certainly going to uh, be be charged with uh, recruiting candidates and and fundraising and and creating a. Uh, a strategy to keep that majority, that that razor-thin majority in 2026, which is going to be, could be President Biden's second off-year uh, off election, which generally has been bad for incumbents. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, it'll be very interesting to see who they select today. Yeah, absolutely, especially when you consider the fact that this is going to be the fourth time within the past few years that DFLers are going to have to pick a new Senate majority leader, as they've uh, had a couple in the past that have uh, are no longer holding the position. They've gone from Tom Bach to Susan Kent to now Carrie Dijic, and now her successor that they are selecting today. And who knows, by the time our interviews play back, we might even know who that successor will be, so we'll follow along. We have been speaking with Patrick Hulican, who is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. Make sure you go to minnesotareformer.com for the latest in Minnesota news and politics. Patrick, as always, thanks for the time today. Always a pleasure. All right, let's take a break and turn things back over to Matt McNeil on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show. We've got a huge story. Oh, this is huge. And and I, I got to tell you, I am knee-deep in news stories today. But this one is huge because this is going to be a huge economic impact to Minneapolis-St. Paul, once again showing that we are a, a, a beacon, a city that people are trying to come to. Joining us right now is Tom Gump. He's with Rotary International. He's the aide to the Rotary president. I think that's a gig you're picking up this year, right? Right. Starts July 1st. Starts July 1st. He's kind enough to join us because we you have a very – Rotary's got a huge announcement for 2029 for Minneapolis, right? We do. Absolutely. All right. You have the floor. What's going to happen? Well, every year we have an international convention where the whole Rotary world gathers in a city. And we haven't hosted that in Minneapolis since 1974. So after a seven-year process of trying, um, the board of directors uh, – last month, voted to have its 2029 convention right here in Minneapolis. Wow. Now, this would be the third time they've actually been here, and because Rotary has got a long history. Yes, 118 years. That's tw- 1928. That was the year before my dad was born. 1928 was the year here for your first time. You bought, you brought, in 1928, they brought 10,000 people into this town? Absolutely. It must have been chaos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have the infrastructure now to handle oh, much more than that. Hopefully we'll have double that. I, I'm going to guess the, the, the Marriott wasn't there at that point. I'm just going to the Hilton wasn't there probably. I guess we were more board, bed and breakfast, boarding houses and barns, that sort of thing. Uh, 1974, you guys were here as well. And once again, 10,000 people coming into town. Correct. Wow. Uh, you, we should list off. This is to give people an idea what a, what a really cool this thing this is for Minneapolis. 
Uh, this year you're where? Singapore. And then next year you're in? Uh, then we're in Calgary. Taiwan. Honolulu, right? Correct. Uh, then the Philippines in 2028. Yes. So this is we're competing internationally with the largest destinations, largest venues, largest places that are bringing in large crowds as well. And Minneapolis is back at it again for 2029. Absolutely. I understand there were about a dozen cities who turned in applications, and then there was a site visit between the, the two leading cities, and then Minneapolis was chosen. Fantastic. Uh, let's let's back up a little bit if we can here. Why don't you just give everyone out there just that kind of that overview. What is Rotary? Well, Rotary is a membership organization that does service. And I personally believe they do the best service in the world. We do everything from child literacy to wash projects, water, sanitation, hygiene. Uh, locally, we do food shelves and everything like that. But we do projects around the world. Um, our president-elect and I um, were just in Pakistan uh, watching them build smart villages because there were floods that dislodged people from their homes. And of course, our number one external priority is eradicating polio, which will be the second disease ever eradicated, smallpox being the first disease. Mm -hmm. And uh, we raise a hundred and with the help of Bill and Melinda Gates Foundations and our other um, partners, uh, World Health Organization, Gavin, uh, Gavi, um, Alliance to get rid of um, Gavi uh, Vaccine Alliance. Um, but we raised $150 million. We raised 50 and then it's matched two for one for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. These are not light projects. I mean, they when are you're not. They, they are not. And, it, and, and this is, there are a lot of great service organizations that are out there, but you are tackling real worldwide tough issues, which dealing with the day-to-day -day life of people. I mean, that's impressive. Yeah, it is. We go in and we change um, communities' lives. I've been to Honduras where we've done fresh water projects where they didn't have fresh water and the infant mortality rates 85%. And then it gets down to 25% after wow. we give them new water. And, you know, I can give all kinds of examples of projects we've done around the world. It's amazing. The, the Rotary is, is still a beacon out there. And this is what's interesting is, I mean, I'm 55. I've grown up and I remember going into a town and you'd see 20 signs of the service organizations. And slowly, sadly, unfortunately, a lot of them have whittled away, fallen them by the wayside and, and not there. But Rotary has stayed strong. What is, what is Rotary's secret on that? How have they been able to, through the changing times, through the changing ideas and mentalities, still been able to be there and be the force that Rotary is? Well, a few years ago at our council legislation, which is basically our parliament, uh, we decided, this was back in 2016, that we would allow clubs to meet different ways. So we go out into the community, we reach out to those potential people of action, and we let them meet the way they want to. You know, the backbone of Rotary is our legacy clubs. I belong to a club that meets at the Adina Country Club um, Tuesday morning, 7.30. My wife meets at a traditional legacy club at noon on Thursdays. But these new clubs, they meet online, they meet on nights, they meet on weekends. Uh, they don't meet four times a month, sometimes they meet twice a month. Mm -hmm. So that flexibility has allowed us to keep on growing. Well, that's, that is a lot of it right there. I mean, working a schedule to where that people want to be involved. People do, people do want to be involved, but sometimes every Tuesday at certain times, it's just too difficult. Absolutely. I mean, we have people who are school teachers and they, you know, want to meet at school. Last year, we formed a club in Monticello. Um, we have a regular Monticello club, but eight school teachers, they formed a satellite club. They meet the same day, but they meet at night at the hotel instead of meeting at noon because they can't meet during the week at noon. You brought up one. And I'm gonna, I, I definitely want to talk about this because polio It is mm -hmm. something that 
at least here in the United States, we've been very successful with. Talk a little bit about that fight. You know, where is it? Where is it standing? And has it mostly mm-hmm. been been curtailed, or is there are there still places on the planet where it's still somewhat out of control? Uh, yes, both. That's a compound, complex question, but ninety nine point nine percent it's been eradicated. But we have two endemic countries, and that being Afghanistan and Pakistan, mm-hmm. and that's the reason we went to Pakistan. And you know, but I am so encouraged that we're going to eradicate this de- disease. We met the frontline workers, most of whom are women. And you know, forty seven individuals have been killed trying to. They've been martyred trying to deliver those drops. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's tough business, but uh, we're going to get it done. We've only had 12 uh, wild cases last year, and hopefully this will be the year that we don't have any. And if we do that for three years in a row, then we can have it the disease certified, the world certified as polio-free, and hopefully that will be done you know, by the time we celebrate Manila. Uh, because that'll be 2028 in the Philippines, and that's where this all started. And mm-hmm. earlier in the year, um, the president-elect and I have met with uh, President Marcos in the Philippines, and he pledged his support to get this done. We also, when we were in last week um, in Islamabad and Karachi, we actually met with the prime minister, and he also is pledging everything he can to make sure that we get this done. So meeting those people, meeting the where they take the samples and store the samples, I have renewed enthusiasm that we are going to be successful in this fight. God willing. I mean, it, there are some things that go beyond politics. And and the idea is, you know, you go there and you think to yourself, okay, no one's really going to have a problem. We're, we're trying to get rid of polio, but we don't understand the complexities that just trying to sit there to say, we're here to save as many kids as we possibly can and prevent this disease from spreading and wiping it out if we possibly can do it. That that still is something which is a bridge too far for some places and yeah. some people. Yeah. And Matt, I can tell you, when you give those two drops of vaccine to a child and you look um, you know, in the parents' eyes, and they know that child will never be crippled. That child will live, and that child will play, and that child will run, just like we do. Um, our children do over here. It uh, gives you a feeling like nothing else. The, I mean, obviously, you, you've brought up a lot of things. It's a multi-texture um, thing. You're talking about large-scale issues here. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about some of the local things that you know, kind of Rotary gets involved with on a local scale. Absolutely. Um, You know, um, there's such thing as club grants and there's district grants and then there's global grants. And our club grants, um, we do all kinds of things from giving money to food shelves. That was a big um, deal during 2020. That was a big focus. Uh, We do a lot of uh, building libraries. Um, We do a lot of um, just helping um, homeless people find homes. You know, we started a veterans club here a couple of years ago, the first one in the world. It's a club to serve veterans. Most of their members are veterans, but there's non-veterans members. You know, their administrator is a pastor whose son-in-law is active duty. So it's about serving the veterans. After they started in the first two weeks, they got a $20,000 grant from the district, and they redid um, a first floor of Havens for Heroes where they made a room where they can play poker and they can mm-hmm. do foosball so they could have that camaraderie. Um, because they were worried about suicide, and they thought that that was a big help. We fought, we and here in this district of Minnesota, we formed the first club in the world to end human trafficking, and now there's a dozen of those around the world. So we work on all kinds of issues, local, regional, and international. As a veteran myself, uh, I, it's solid work, absolutely, because that is something that's a, a constant fight out there. And 
it's this unified team. It's finding all the cracks. And that's the key is there's a lot of great people out there that do a lot of things, but there's so many cracks that need to get filled. Mm-hmm. Rotary is there. Not only, I mean, you're doing the large scale things. I mean, my goodness, you're doing a lot of very impressive large scale things, but then you get on that local level, you can find where the cracks are and you can get in there and fix it. And that's just exceptional. So, well, thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for letting us have an opportunity to tell the world about what we do. So I want to let's if someone wants wants to become a member, wants to find out how to become a member of Rotary. I mean, obviously, it's operating everywhere. Yes. Uh, so there's going to be a local chapter. It's not yeah. going to be too difficult for you to find any information. Are there any parameters, anything that uh, that, that fall into line that you need to, to, to become a member or is it pretty much anyone? You know, the reality is if people have the hands for service and they have the hearts for service, they can join Rotary. And we are in over 200 different countries. We have lots of um, chapters in your listening area, uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa. And all they have to do is uh, they can Google it and just reach out. Um, they could reach out to me. I'll be happy to join it because we need more members. I mean, I mentioned we're a membership organization, but the reason we want more members is not just to have members, but to do that service, to go out and serve the world and help those people who need it. And um, we want to do it with people who are like-minded, but there are clubs of all different sorts, and we have fellowships, and we have action groups, so no matter what talent and what way you want to serve, we can do it. And if there's not a club that reaches that, we'll help you form a new club, and you can do it the way you want to do, like we did with our Veterans Club, and we did with our and Human Trafficking Club. Um, perfect. Uh, congratulations, 1920, uh, 1920, 2029, <laughs> 2029. Yes, sir. You were here in 20, 1928, 100, 101 years later. I know. That's crazy. That is crazy. Coming 2029 into Minneapolis, Rotary International, their big event. There's going to be 10,000 people, at least 10,000 people probably. You know, we budgeted for 17, but our aspirational goal is even higher than that. So, and you can be part of that too by joining Rotary. Just find Rotary. Just go to your website, go to your search bar, type in Rotary, type in your town in Rotary. I guarantee you'll probably find something there. Uh, Tom, first of all, congratulations. Thank well you. done. Thank you. Well done on all this stuff, man. Dude, very impressive. Tom Gump, uh, Rotary International, congratulations on this. And uh, we'll be talking, I imagine, a few times over the next few years as we get ready for 2029. We'd welcome the opportunity. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Tom Gump, Rotary International. Go find it and find out how you can be part of that as well. Uh, Let's take a break. Come on back. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. So as we are wrapping up this show, um, the Mayorkas impeachment vote has not started. It should be starting any second now. Um, there have been actually, and they, uh, one of the things I'm looking at the New York Times, one of the things the Times has said is that there have actually been some um, Democrats and Republicans who have missed votes earlier today. One question is that the attendance will likely vote. Uh, Steve Scalise, the number two House Republican, has been out as he battles cancer. Several Democrats and Republicans missed votes earlier today. Absences on either side could affect the outcome. That's absolutely. And if I'm one of these Republicans who comes from a moderate district and I don't want this vote on my side, all of a sudden uh, I was at the vending machine. What did I miss? Is possibly a viable excuse. <laughs> I love my my, my, my jujubees, man. Uh, who doesn't love them? They're delicious. I'm sorry. Did I miss something? Uh, so they're at zero right now. The uh, vote count is uh, they have not started yet. But it's, but it's going to happen here soon. It will be interesting to see. I mean, if if it does pass, it's going to pass by the skin of the teeth. Some constitutional um, 
you know, scholars have basically looked at and pretty much rejected the arguments that the um, that the the, the 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 Republicans have made here in regards to the justification for getting rid of him. You don't just because you don't like how he's doing the job. That's not enough to get rid of him, and that seems to be the 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 kind of the 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 kind of the the argument they're making. They, they don't like they don't like how he's done the job, but the reality is he's not done anything illegal with the job as much as they want to say that he has. And so, yeah, um, two other quick things here, if I may. First of all, I thought I was I, I, when I saw this story. Okay, so we talked yesterday about the the evil twin story where the one woman hit the Amish buggy, killed two kids and um, killed the, you know, and the other two kids went to the hospital. Uh, they were going to school. She was on meth and various other things and then tried to get her twin sister to take the fall for her. That sort of thing. Remember that? That. So when I saw this story, I was like, Oh gosh, did they screw up and somehow accidentally reprint the original story? No, it's a different town. Two young children are hospitalized after a driver collided with an Amish buggy in Hinkley last week, the Pine County Sheriff's Office said the children aged two and four were among six people riding in the horse-drowned buggy when they were struck by a driver on the 27,000 block of Hinkley Road on February 1st. Um, two passengers suffered life-threatening injuries, the Sheriff's Office said. While the Sheriff's Office hasn't confirmed that the two young children are those with life-threatening injuries, it did say they were taken to Children's Hospital in Minneapolis, while a GoFundMe campaign set up by the family mentions the children children were airlifted to the ICU where their conditions are stable as of Saturday. According to the news release, the driver called 911 after the collision and stated they'd hit an object in the road. The driver of the motor vehicle was uninjured. The crash remains under investigation. Uh, fundraiser creator Kevin Murphy, who is a neighbor of the family, said helicopter costs associated with the transport of the children is estimated to cost between $30,000 and $100,000. The mother is also injured. We are praying for the best for all those involved. He wrote in September, a collision between the vehicle and a horse-drawn buggy in Fillmore County left two children dead and two others seriously injured. That was the story I thought this was referring to. Um, yeah. Um, I'm going to post the story. The story is from bringmethenews.com. I'm going to post in the story. There's a link to the GoFundMe page. If you can help out, please do. If you can help out, please do. Finally, last thing here too. And I I understand this 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 show, the last half hour or so has been really kind of this this thing about service and stuff. But I got to get into one last thing political because this is embarrassing. Now, we spent a good portion of last week talking about the false translation of Ilhan Omar's speech, which at best, at best was a perfect storm of incompetence, which led to a faulty translation, a, a right wing. Um, I'm not, I don't know if I'm calling the news outlets, right. They were even saying we can't verify the, the translation, which led then to Tom Emmer basically taking a, a bad translation that was posted with caveats on a news site and Tom Emmer basically condemning Ilhan Omar. Well, then you find out, well, no, she didn't say that. And that wasn't just off of her. The Star Tribune had an independent person validate that, no, she didn't say the, the negative things the right was claiming that she said. Minnesota reformer did hired two 
translators to determine that, no, she never said what the initial person said. But still, because Republicans just hate her, hate her with the fire of a million suns, they basically can't stop themselves. And, you know, Jose Canseco, a.k.a. Marjorie Taylor Greene, she has basically introduced a resolution to basically throw her, try to throw her out of the country, uh, censor her and throw her out of the country. Guess who is co-sponsoring the resolution? Representative Brad Finstead down, apparently. that's This is what, you know, Jose Canseco is saying. Um, but apparently Finstead's name's on this as well. And, you know, considering we know what this whole thing is based on is a lie, the only thing I have to say to Finstead is, is it, do you hate all black people or you just hate the East African black people? Because it sounds like it's one of the two. Native Roots Radio is up next. We are back tomorrow. Have a good one. Till tomorrow. See ya.